You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome back after a short hiatus back to Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name, degrowing is my game. So you know how all our favourite and endearing TV series have a Christmas special? Often there's a stopgap between seasons? Well, PGAP is doing exactly the same thing. Well, okay, there may be a few differences. Firstly, while many do a Christmas special out of sheer desperation before their program gets cancelled, I'm glad to share that the kind folk at Sustainable Population Australia have allowed PGAP to continue for another season with their blessings. Secondly, instead of feel-good Christmas jingles, you will instead listen to the more bleaker, environmentally angsty corners of my songwriting repertoire. Lastly, and perhaps most crucially, instead of a star-studded lineup or a feel-good Christmas message from Queen Betty, it'll just be lonesome old me serenading your eardrums with my semi-apocalyptic innuendo travelling by active osmosis into your eardrums. So, for those of you who managed to restrain yourselves from clicking the stop button at the very thought of spending Christmas with your favourite curmudgeon, Well done on your superhuman feat of restraint and self-discipline here. But seriously, I was thinking, throughout PGAP's 30 episodes, I've been goading my guests to share their vision of their post-growth future with the big bad world, so at some point people may start getting curious about where I stand personally with things. I know I've been. (laughs) I've given you dribs and drabs during the intros and outros, but never to the full-on manifesto stage. This all changes on this very festive episode. In terms of sharing my vision, I've decided to repurpose the talk notes, uh, which I used to deliver to the Economic Reform Australia in late July of this year. That talk was entitled From Academic to Practical, The Challenges of Living and Working in a Local Intentional Community. The talk was originally written to be presented in three parts. It went from examining the common call for localised communities shared among many of PGAP interviewees to a personal account of my own challenges in realising localised community transitions during my stint in Melbourne, followed by my own personal vision for a post-growth society and my rationale behind it. Unfortunately, I never actually got around to sharing part three of my vision at the talk itself. The first bit of the talk was enough to inspire a healthy round-robin dialogue, which was great. It just meant that there was no time left for the spicy kick at the end. I'm going to make amends by reversing the order of the speech notes. So I will start off this episode by sharing my own personal post-growth manifesto as a means to finally release those demons inside my head. Following this, I will share some of my personal challenges and learnings from my attempts to facilitate localised and intentional communities within Inner Melbourne over the past decade. To break up this episode, I'll be playing several tunes. The first is A Deer Caught in the Headlights from my band Shock Octopus. I first came up with this song in Pinjara, WA, back in late 2008. I had been watching this series called Tribe, 
where a guy from the UK spends time in a different Indigenous non-industrialised society every episode of the series. Each episode began by exploring how unique, incredible and in tune with the natural world each of these societies were and ended invariably in the same way, their lands threatened by civilization and development and their way of life bought, sold and appropriated at best or violently obliterated at worst. At the time, I was working as a temp student employee thing for Alcoa and seeing with my very eyes a mowing down of the Jarrah forests in conjunction with the slow death of the dieback disease just starting to impact the area in a big way. So deer caught in the headlights tried to capture these feelings of existential dread and imminent loss. <laughs> Ironically, the song took off and was a highlight in the band's sets, with people dancing and shouting along to it. I think because the lyrics were quite oblique and obscured, and that the riff was quite catchy, that the meaning went over everyone's heads. I'm kind of reminded when Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA was used as Ronald Reagan's election campaign, or when Australian politicians puff out with pride over us being a lucky country without grasping the actual sarcastic meaning of Donald Horne's book. Anyway, Dear Cord in the Headlights was recorded in 2012, the Shock Octopus's first EP, and then released as a lead single nine years later for our retrospective compilation long player, A Decade Into Darkness. This is not your normal Christmas time jingle. But then again, this isn't your normal Christmas edition podcast. So there. Beyond the sprawl, beyond the blight, the neon light, beyond the sea, under the trees, a secret garden. We have to go a little further that they'll never find us here. Can you hear the chains of near? You, you and me, we need the dirt beneath our feet, need the green within our reach to think we're another race. Darwin draws, your darling days are drawing near. Can you hear the chains of near? Disillusionment I hear and when it's gone We'll float up high And when it's gone I hear your cry And when you're gone A kiss goodbye divine There is no Headlights a deer, caught in the 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 headlights a deer, Done a pal, boring you hoes in my world. 
dear caught in the headlights my dear she's caught in the headlights my dear she's caught in the headlights we play Welcome back. That was A Deer Caught in the Headlights by Shock Octopus. This is available to listen to at your fingertips on Spotify. And if you're someone who (laughs) buys music, support artists and original music, uh, this can be bought online on Bandcamp. But I digress. So my theories, which belong to me, which are mine, which go as follows. (coughs) So first thing is first. As a society, as a species, whatever, we need to somehow rediscover the lost art at leaving the natural world the fuck alone. (laughs) To take a leaf from Catherine Trebek's Economics of Arrival book, we need to know when to stop. For almost all of us, and particularly for those of us in the global north, we should have stopped ages ago. But as they say, better too late than never. So what do I mean by stopping? It is easy enough to say stop economic growth or stop extracting coal out of the ground to fund dirty fossil fuel. But it goes beyond this. One of the very first things we need to do, just as a starting point, is to stop any further major construction and development projects. We have subsumed more than enough land towards three quarters of the world's land surface, I think. And this is definitely the point to say, sorry, no more. And by stopping, this means we actually need to stop. (laughs) I know, crazy thought, right? No more land releases. No more pouring concrete over farmland. No more major infrastructure projects. The exception is when new buildings are absolutely necessary. For example, public housing, eco-housing to replace existing stock, or for the necessary infrastructure required to transition to low-carbon communities and industries within a degrowth paradigm. Even with our lower population density, too much of Australia has been given over to human activity. Whether we're talking broad-scale agriculture and increasingly shocking urban development, this should have come to an end decades ago. Without first halting the scale of what we are currently doing, everything else is academic. So what needs to be done to get there? Using modern monetary theory as a tool, former construction, trades and timber workers could be directed towards maintenance and retrofitting of existing infrastructure, replanting, biocharring some of the existing burnt forests, replanting damaged agricultural land, and transitioning to regenerative farming. If a currency issuing government can't go broke, then expenditure towards post-growth friendly industries and job opportunities is critical. The main limiter is the availability and access to dwindling resources, not public budget deficits. Speaking of MMT, this could assist with ensuring that every suburb has access to a community garden, meeting centre and tool shed facilitated by experts regardless of economic status in the community. 
by returning housing and communities to common goods rather than privatise speculative investments of ever-appreciating values. This means that features such as community gardens won't be fetishised and lead to gentrification and soaring land prices within these communities. In order to stop development occurring on exponentially growing scales towards the pockets of exponentially shrinking owners of capital, Fundamental changes need to be enforced on the way we do business. There need to be ceiling limits on the number of properties that any one person can own with means tested or quantity limits on property speculation such as negative gearing and capital gains tax concession. There need to be ceiling limits of income to dampen wealth inequality and ceiling limits on the amount that banks are willing to lend so they can't set the price on exponentially rising house prices. Public housing to government-run rental arrangements need to be the norm and not the exception. There need to be ceiling limits of income to dampen wealth inequality and ceiling limits on the amount that banks are willing to lend so they can't set the price on exponentially rising house prices. Public housing to government-run rental arrangements need to be the norm and not the exception. There need to be ceiling limits to the size of big business. Current huge franchise or corporate agglomerations need to be broken down. This is to avoid the misuse of power and centralisation that comes with scale. In Australia's situation, I believe that there needs to be a movement towards shifting more power from federal and state jurisdictions towards local governments within a broader scale of creating smaller and more participatory communities or even nation states. I am fully aware that local councils aren't always bastions of morality either, but this will mean that they are not starved of funding from the federal government and therefore forced to cooperate with private corporations and developers. Over time, ideally, local governments are held more accountable from citizen participation and therefore can make better decisions around, for example, land use, local economies, self-sufficiency or trade decisions, how and if their jurisdictions grow or shrink, <laughs> especially in terms of population and better decisions around housing and who resides in the suburbs. For example, the decision on who lives in the community does not have to be decided around who can pay the highest bid via a third party organisation that is not invested in the community. In a worst case scenario, even if local communities do not function, the magnitude and scale of complexity or operation and therefore the scale of impact and damage is mitigated. Am I completely antithetical to globalisation? Mostly yes. However, I do understand that there are always exceptions. No one region of the world can produce everything. Australia struggles with growing rice, for example, and it is difficult to see industries around critical life-saving medicines without a form of globalism. We all need to be involved globally to ensure that we don't become petty and insular, and also to ensure that there is an integrated and shared response to addressing so many of the world's issues. In terms of working together across nation states, we must come from an approach of mutual aid 
where everyone can benefit and learn and where less privileged communities are provided with needed support on their terms. Otherwise, I like the idea that investments for private projects can only be done at the local council scale. This means that this puts an immediate ceiling limit on the scale of infrastructure projects. As I understand it, modern industrialised capitalism emerge as a scale of investment and returns increase, and one of the major reasons why GDP is forced to exponentially grow to pay back on exponentially growing investment projects. Ultimately, I believe in the term think global and at local, and I believe at the end of the day, humans work so much better when they're not having to work within inhuman scales. It is better for democracy too. I think it is fair to say that democracy is a more real experience in smaller countries such as Luxembourg and Costa Rica, where politicians may be more accountable if they live over the road from you, though of course they are still far from perfect. Compare that to the USA, a country of 350 million presided over by one person and his business donors, who may live thousands of kilometres away. How then can you have a fair democracy where all opinions are heard and weighted accordingly? Now, I always advocate for this, and for some reason it keeps falling on deaf ears despite the fact that it makes perfect sense in my head, is for organised direct action protest against property developers and, for example, the Property Council, in much the same way that organisations such as Extinction Rebellion and Youth Strike perform against government and mining operations. I'm very uncomfortable with pitting action against government ministers on town planning or economic decisions when developers are left unchecked. It simply means that they're free to pour Penfolds Grange down and influence whoever happens to be in power at the time. It might be argued, why don't I do it then? To which my immediate response is because I'm not a brilliant direct action campaigner and I can't imagine having the bloody mindedness to organise an action and convince people to come along. I think another reason that this idea of mine hasn't had traction is that, like it or not, almost all of us are caught up in the housing market and are therefore dependent in some shape or form in the persistence of the institutional Stockholm Syndrome that we otherwise call the property sector. It is easy to picket against frackers and coal miners when the villains are the evil corporations, but much harder to antagonise something for which deep down we know that we are the monster. In Australia's case, a decolonised ecocentric future economy requires the acknowledgement of past injustices to First Nations people and deliberate, not tokenistic, mechanisms to hand back control of stewardship power and our understanding of systems and relation to the world with all the insecurities and uncertainties that this will invariably entail. I'm not sure where to start here, although a purposeful aim toward smaller societies and scales of operation so that land becomes available to actually hand back to traditional custodians is a good start rather than more land being swallowed up for growth whilst we're willing Kevin Rudd to say sorry all over again. 
I believe first law or local equivalents and traditional language history and stories are prioritised in school education so that future generations aren't brought up with the blinkers that were placed on us during our education. I believe that economic systems that revolve around the local council economy as a central hub may mean that direct conversations with traditional custodians may be more possible without being assumed by the systemic bureaucracies that inhibit change within larger, more complex systems. All these things, I suggest, require a change to population policy and the way in which we all approach our attitudes toward population sustainability, even in consideration of the other contributors to total human impact, such as the terrible and wasteful consumption patterns in the global north, the vast gulf of wealth inequality both between and within nations, and the persisting reliance on fossil fuels, I can't see any way in addressing the issues I've mentioned above with an ever-growing population. Population is a great multiplier, the great catalyst, if you will, that alone is insufficient in addressing our impact on the planet, but is a necessary prerequisite for anything else to work. Population growth is the ultimate fuel that drives the momentum of so many of our industries. Without more producers, financial institutions can't invest in large-scale projects anticipating GDP growth that will allow borrowers to repay on interest. Without more consumers, the construction and property sectors are starved of the rocket fuel necessary to justify speculating on property value and concreting over fertile soil with no end in sight. In globalised societies, the externalities can be dispersed across the globe, diffusing the everyday experience of planetary overshoot. But with smaller, more independent societies that rely on the immediate countryside to sustain themselves, overshoot becomes more immediately apparent, with overpopulation more felt. One thing we have learnt is that the world wants universal access to healthcare and education and we know from countless examples that when this happens, fertility rates naturally drop. It is only the political and religious ideologies that are standing in the way of these services being provided and one ideology that really hates declining populations is our growth-based economic system. Once the world embraces everyone's right to have the number of children that they desire and that any resultant decline in fertility rate is not only inevitable but desirable, our current unsustainable economic model will be starved of much of its oxygen and society will be forced to adapt to a steady state system of living that is not reliant upon ever increasing growth in population or consumption. In Australia, I believe true First Nation reconciliation is ultimately impossible as long as migration policy is used as a mechanism to bolster and encourage residential expansion into more and more unoccupied areas or through highly carbon intensive ongoing densification projects. Ultimately, we're talking about a catch-22 here. So how to address population policy? On a global scale, recognise that most women, and indeed men, generally gravitate to smaller families everywhere. It's just that they need a leg up with financial and logistical support to access contraception, family planning and reproductive health services.
Global population will stabilise and even decrease of its own voluntary accord if only we are prepared to close a gap and not use white guilt as an excuse not to incorporate universal access to family planning services into our foreign aid programs. Domestically, Australia is kind of like the rest of the Anglosphere on steroids. Scapegoat refugees and asylum seekers whilst cranking record high-skilled temporary and student migrations at the bequest of big business for narrow economic objectives. Fun! We need to have a mature approach to migration policy in Australia by being willing to cut through the dichotomy and divisiveness. We need to be okay with the possible future of an older and shrinking demographic, as this is the only way our population can degrow. We need to take the decision-making on population policy away from big business lobbyists into citizen assemblies. There is a taboo and inertia on debating the issue openly, which only serves the interests of those who pursue a migration program that is both huge in scale and hugely discriminating. I suspect that if power was transferred to local governments whose citizens had a say on the size of their own smaller jurisdictions, then Australia's population growth would slow substantially. This is partly due to the democratisation of population policy and partly as a response when people are more accountable for their own local region without a diffusion of responsibility or somewhere else for people to go. Beyond population, beyond consumption, beyond fossil fuels, we need a fundamental shift in consciousness, one that ultimately learns to fall in love with the natural world again and allow ourselves to become humbled by our small role in a vast and interconnected web of life that expands in all directions and in all scales. To recognise that our individual needs do not trump the right to life that all other species on this planet have. That we don't need to strive, work and burrow our frows to bend the land to our will. There is virtue to leaving things a fuck alone and to be okay with this. To relearn that the truth of existence dwells between the gaps of the crude labels we make through our words and that we do more good indulging in rituals that take us outside of language than sling arbitrary divisions at one another over social media. To avoid repeating the mistakes of the past and of the present and replacing one ism with another ism requires a radical shift in perception and consciousness. Perhaps then there is an argument for spiking a water supply with psilocybin. However, I would like to think that a mindful bushwalk could be just as effective and easier to pass through an ethics committee. Do I think any of the above is possible? Well, in theory, yes, and I believe these adjustments are very doable. Do I think we have the collective will to make these changes before societal, economic and environmental collapse? Probably not. We've had plenty of chances and we've blown them all. I love it how last year people were saying the COVID lockdowns really gave us a chance to think and take stock before doing the same shit all over again this year. Except now we're twice the division. <laughs> but you know, I always say it's better to strive for the good, even when impossible, than to do nothing to prove that you were right all along. I also always say that the post-growth movement doesn't necessarily have to stop collapse. It can be about building a mindset and a tool so we have a narrative and story to persist after collapse 
whatever that may look like. I could go on for hours, but they say you shouldn't make a podcast episode longer than an hour, not unless you're really famous, so I shan't. Instead, while I have you all on an existential note, I will play an existential seasonal song from Counting Backwards, A Miserable Sodding Christmas. This track is a demo that has been unreleased, but the track made my day so much that the artist let me use it for this show. Thank you, Counting Backwards. Spent last Christmas night out of sight, rewriting greetings cards, and all the words I dropped for every song I played is a tribute to what I guess this year I'll spend my Christmas time alone From the very start I played the part In a drama that has no chance Now at Christmas time I'll do my best To try not to understand This year I'll spend my Christmas time alone Oh, Christmas A shameless display of show and tell Oh, Christmas If you set me free I'll try to wish you well Last year was hell, it was hell Yeah, it was hell With Tom Waits on the turntable and Mike Lee on the shelf I guess this year I'm better off by myself Welcome back to PGAP, dearest of listener. I hope the musical choices have inspired some seasonal cheer prior to some more of my dulcet tones, or otherwise. Over the course of PGAP's history, I've interviewed many guests with a huge diversity of views on what their vision of a post-growth future may look like. If there is a unifying theme among most of the PGAP interviewees thus far, it is that they are all advocating for an end to neoliberalism and inequality. Surprise, surprise. There's consumption, more of voluntary frugality, fewer working hours, and more leisure time. More crucially, in almost all cases, interviewees advocate for localised communities and economies, working more intentionally and communally on smaller scales, more DIY and DIO, shared living, etc. 
All of these things are incredibly valid and noble causes. But, as with most fantastic ideas, the challenge is always in putting theory to practice. As I'm doing a lot of reflecting and reminiscence anyway, I often go back to my nine years in inner North Melbourne and my various projects that were aiming towards a more localised, collaborative and intentional approach to breaking away from the mainstream economic and social paradigms. Within an urban setting with a few finances and resources, these initiatives were often rewarding but also often difficult and precarious to build and maintain these movements. Looking back, it was the anarchist group a Doing It Ourselves that set me on the degrowth path. I came across DIO in 2013 at a day-long workshop in which Nicole Foss from Automatic Earth was keynote speaker. I'd heard of environmental collapse, but Nicole was talking about the then seemingly imminent financial collapse. So, full of anticipation, I joined up with DIO on the spot. Looking back 10 years later, I was definitely naive in retrospect. However, this was certainly the inception point of many great things to come. Through DIO workshops at the Comfest Festival, I co-founded holistic activism and population permaculture and planning with Mark Hallen, who's been on PGAP twice. Mark has taken the latter in exciting new directions, rebranding to Town Planning Rebellion. Doing It Ourselves were also participants in the Post-Growth Alliance, an initiative run by Post-Growth Institute. Without the DIO connection, I may not have dived headfirst into the post-growth movements. DIO was also one of many occasions where I started off as a dull-eyed devotee and within several months I suddenly found myself as a reluctant head coordinator of a waning movement as people started dropping off due to lack of capacity, lack of engagement or because they were simply moving on. This was a pattern which was to repeat many, many times. Within a year of visiting community gardens in Melbourne, I found myself running the food swap table at one such place in the northern suburb of Coburg. Embedded within the gardening, anarchists, intentional communities and permaculture movements in Melbourne, I joined the Gnomes Urban Gardening Collective. This is a project I recall most fondly. Essentially, it was built on the premise that some people own houses but don't have time to garden in them and other people live in apartments or short-term accommodation and don't have the means to garden. So why not bring the two together? This was a great idea that, for at least a couple of years, was fairly successful within a smaller manageable scale. At its peak, there were five operating households across inner North Melbourne which acted as nodes where regular people came together to plant out edibles in the yards, share in a harvest, and even share the harvests and preserves among the broader gnomes community. The larger working bees often involved communal dinners at the end of the day with amazing bonding and community vibes. When it worked, gnomes was one of the strongest bonding exercises ever, and there were some days the more productive gardens provided me with enough vegetables and fruit for a week if admittedly very little in the way of carbs and protein, except for broad bean month in November. There was a fair amount of administrating and planning involved. We tried to set up a system of homeowner and gardener written agreements, plan open days at the houses and advertise a gnome system so it could be replicated on larger scales. 
When I started at Gnomes, I was adamant that I was helping out at one property only and doing none of the admin and organising. Within half a year, I was reluctantly one of the core administrators and helping out across three fledgling properties. After a couple of years, the core group of people that started the project gradually dissipated and this is when the cracks started to show. How can one plan for a working bee when 10 inner North Melbourne anarchists say they will come and only two show up on the day? This isn't a philosophical musing like the sound of a tree falling in an empty forest. This happened with regularity. What happens when a successful gnomes project is happening in a house rental and then the landlords inevitably decide to knock the house and fertile garden down to build the next upturned concrete high-rise nightmare? What happens when your Facebook page has thousands of followers telling you it's a great idea but the same three people end up holding the fort across the remaining three properties whilst moderating the Facebook page and while their existing house share gets demolished for the next high rise and they have to scramble to search for the new lease with a new bunch of housemates? Ah, Speaking of house sharing, from late 2016 to late 2020, I wasn't involved in an experiment to bring David Holmgren's retro suburbia idea into an intentional house share scenario in Preston. It was a large space that fitted six people easily or 10 people at a pinch. It was based around communal dinners, productive garden with a community library and with the aim to be a hub for the wider activist community in terms of holding workshop spaces, etc, etc. Again, for the first six months, it worked really well and was even a feature house on the ABC Housemates program in 2017, which brought us some notoriety. Again, the foundations shook from time to time, and this time I'm not even talking about shoddy housing design. It was a good house, actually. <laughs> I won't go into specifics. However, the broader picture is that it was very difficult to juggle intentional community living in the inner city with the overlapping demands of work, rent, and the reality in living in a city of over 5 million during late-stage capitalism. It often meant living two overlapping lives with a conflict of interest that became too much for many. Hence, the rotation of housemates meant that, in reality, the vast majority of free time and capacity was spent advertising and interviewing new prospective housemates. Very little energy remained to actually agreeing to long-term visions or projects. It is perhaps tautological to say interpersonal conflicts are often a stark day-to-day -day reality. I'm very proud to say that the house is still standing the year after I left and despite a loosening of some of the intentional living aspects, is still doing interesting and different things and still has a very thriving garden. This is a testament to past legacies and present commitments to doing something outside of the neoliberal square. So what did I learn from any of this? I did wonder for a while if I was a common denominator and perhaps this may be true to some extent. However, I have visited a few rural intentional communities since where similar challenges play out. So that has come to some weird relief for me. I've grappled to what extent the challenges of working and living intentionally result from the pressures of modern society, whether trying to exist between two worlds where any endeavour to create a better world can be mowed down at any moment by the act of society eventually pouring concrete over anything that is sacred. 
in which case any move towards localised economies cannot happen unless there is a structural change in place that puts an end to current growth at all cost economic systems, especially if there is any intention on doing this kind of thing within the cities. Is it because so many of these projects were informal, without capital investment which made them so ephemeral? If so, then envisioning a post-growth currency economy is fraught, unless there is no other alternative. Or is it because the modern industrialised system has fractured our relationships with each other and the planet, so we've lost the ability to compromise, share, communicate grievances constructively and put our victim stories to one side? Well, if this is the case, then economic and system change is not enough. We need a radical shift in psychology, consciousness, and dare I say, even spirituality. Is it fundamental human nature that any collaboration is fraught with hierarchies, blame, resentment, miscommunication, with our very biology a fundamental barrier in the way of good ideas turning into actual realities? If so, well, there is some existentialism there, but all the more reason to advocate for smaller local economies where at least the scale of hierarchy, power and damage is mitigated by its very scale. Whatever the underlying cause of contention is, I still believe that local cooperation is the way forward. However, my own experience is that I'll approach it differently from now on by coming at it from living in an eco-village perspective where there is a lot more autonomy than living in a share house. So I suppose I need to give a word of caution whenever the terms local shared community sufficiency are used in theory, that there is a lot of work and soul searching to be done to ensure that they can be achieved in practice. With that said, I think this is one of those food for thought moments to end this episode on. I would love to know your opinions on what I've said and what your vision for a post-growth future may be, or whether you have activists or intentional community experiences and anecdotes that may be better, worse, or vastly funnier than my own. Contact PGAP anytime and spill the beans. If you are feeling particularly generous and festive this season, one of the best gifts you can give for PGAP is a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Go on, don't be shy. PGAP will return in the new year, kicking off Season 3 with a stellar guest cast. I'm really looking forward to it. In the meantime, I'm going to end this with another one of my songs called So Far From Home. This song was the latest composition produced exclusively for the latest release from my band, the retrospective compilation album, A Decade Into Darkness, The Best of Shock Octopus. This electronic-only release can be found on Bandcamp or, if you must, Spotify. The song is based on a tale shared by a shaman in the Carlos Castanodo novel Journey to Ixtalan. The tale provides a strong allegory to the lonely path of the shaman, or to broaden the net a little, experience at the cost of innocence, or for dedication in following what is true to oneself at the price of familiarity and popularity. The less worn path often feels like a lonely one in this changing and fluxing world, so it is only so valuable when we do find fellow travellers to walk with us down these hallowed halls. Take care of each other this festive season, and until next time, until then. 
on my way back home And the people you knew will pass away And the home where you grew will rest and stay But the spirit wanders on and on Nostalgic Forever Down the lonely road And the flowers of spring That wind to braid And the gardens you grew To weeds decay But the only ghost Does wander on Nostalgic